Good evening, church family. It is a joy to be up here with you this morning, or excuse me, this evening. Yeah, it's the evening, right? Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 21 through 26 this evening. That can be found on page 963 in the Pew Bible. Um, last week, Pastor Ken preached the introductory passage of the new section that we're in in the Sermon on the Mount. He showed us how Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This introductory passage is concluded uh, in verse 20, where Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The next several sections, pericopes, Jesus will raise the bar for his disciples and for us by calling us to a righteousness that works itself, not starting from the outside, but a righteousness, a kingdom righteousness that works its way from the inside out. One that produces new affections, a new heart. The text before us this evening, Jesus raises the bar for us in our personal relationships. Before we read the text, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his spirit to help us in this moment. Father, as we approach your word, give us eager hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Empower everyone in this congregation by your spirit to hear your word that you have for them tonight. In this moment, empower me by your spirit to speak your word to your people. Without your spirit, neither one of us could do this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be reading starting at verse 20 through verse 26. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In 2021, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation estimated that every 15 minutes and 26 seconds a violent crime happened in the state of Georgia. So if those statistics remain true this year, before the end of this worship service, there will be four victims of violent crimes before the worship service is over. 
even more staggering. Georgia Bureau of Investigation estimates every 11 hours, 45 minutes, and 30 seconds, a murder takes place. Again, if these statistics are true for this year, that means by the time you wake up to go to work or to go to school, someone in the state of Georgia will be a victim of a murder. We have clear evidence in these stats that relationships are not valuable. When we hear a murder, it's a crystal clear in our mind that the murderer, the murderer does not value life, nor does he or she value relationships. But are murderers the only people who don't value relationships? Are they the only ones? Now, I have to say this. I appreciate and I love the South. I've been here my whole life. I love good old Southern hospitality. But you and I know that there is a culture of Southern hospitality where someone can be smiling in your face, yet despising you in their heart. I've been in the South for 34 years, and I know that rings true. And as the 1960s group, The Temptations, say, they hit the nail on the head. Smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. You know what I mean. So just because you haven't murdered someone, and just because you have a smiling face, does that mean you value relationships? Just because you've never spilled blood and have a smile, does that mean you have obeyed the sixth commandment? The question I have for you tonight is, do you value relationships? And even more, are you willing to do all that you can to keep relationships intact? Some of you may be asking, personal relationships, I thought this section is on anger. And you are right. But anger matters. Anger is understood in the context of personal relationships. The reason Jesus is addressing anger is because anger is the very thing that destroys personal relationships. Now, we will talk about anger. We will talk about murder. We will talk about these things. But I don't want you to miss the bigger picture of not only the commandment, but of what Jesus is trying to say here. He's addressing relationships. Again, I say the reason anger is a big issue for Jesus is because relationships are a big issue in the kingdom of God. So the truth I want to submit to you tonight is that because relationships are precious, important, valuable in the kingdom, Jesus graciously calls his disciples, and, and yes, you tonight, to do all that you can for the sake of your personal relationships. You and I are to give our all for the sake of the relationships we have because in the kingdom of God, relationships are valuable. So what does God what does the God-man graciously call us to do in the relationship? In his grace, Jesus has given us two simple yet difficult things to do. These two simple things will drive us to trust in his grace when we fail, and it will drive us to rely on his grace 
to accomplish what he's calling us to do. It's going to drive us to trust him. It's going to drive us to rely on him. And what are those two things? He's calling us first to address the heart that destroys relationships. And second, he calls us to pursue the means that maintains them. Address, pursue. Pursue and address. These two things God in Christ is calling us to do because relationships are so valuable in the kingdom. So are you ready to hear? I hope you are. Are you ready to hear how Jesus is calling us to raise the bar in our relationships? I hope you are because, (laughs) strap up, we're about to go. (laughs) Addressing the heart that destroys relationships. The idea of being satisfied and patting yourself on the back for simply not murdering someone or simply not maliciously roasting a coworker. That bar is a bar that is set by Pharisees. That bar is too low for anyone who calls themselves a kingdom disciple. To exceed the Pharisees, that righteousness of the Pharisees in the area of personal relationships, we have got to first address the heart. We have to address the heart of what destroys relationships, not simply the actions that destroy relationships. We have to attack the fruit of it, not just, excuse me, the root of it, not just the fruit of it. Let me show you why I say this. In verse 21, look down at me. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus here acknowledges the rabbinical teaching, their interpretation of the command. If if you've been paying attention, especially in Matthew when Jesus speaks of the Old Testament, he says, it is written. He doesn't say that here. He said, you've heard it was said. His issue that he's about to contrast has nothing to do with the Old Testament scriptures, and it has everything to do with how the Pharisees have interpreted this commandment. And then beginning at verse 22, he says, but I say to you, and then drops this kingdom-minded interpretation of the sixth commandment. Jesus has three real issues with this interpretation. First, this interpretation is a little too short-sighted. Simply saying don't kill doesn't get to the, the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is the preservation of life, the preservation of relationship. Second, it's a, it's a tad superficial. Simply not murdering someone only scratches the surface. What about the heart of the one who has murdered someone? What about that? And lastly, his issue is that it created a false sense of security. If God simply requires don't murder, how many at that time sitting around at the feet of Jesus could have said, well, your boy is good. I haven't stoned anybody. I hadn't pushed anybody off a cliff. I'm not exactly sure how they went about murdering someone physically, but they were like, I haven't done that. My hands are clean. God looks on me and says, well done. It, this interpretation, 
would lead people to trust in themselves and their ability, their ability to obey God's command. In contrast, Jesus, he broadens the scope, he deepens the commandment, and he forces them to rely on his grace. Listen to what he says. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These three phrases, though different, all say the same thing. It's not simply what you do. It's how you feel and what you say about someone that makes you liable before God. In interpreting the sixth commandment like this, Jesus gets back to the heart of what murder is about, why he says, do not do it. It is the preservation of life and relationships. In interpreting this, he adds the, the heart behind what a, why a murderer murders. He gets to the heart of it again. And lastly, he creates a need for grace. For who at Jesus' feet was innocent of cutting some eyes at someone, of having an angry feeling about a brother or a sister? Who was guilty or who was innocent of that? This may sound difficult to fathom, but in the courts of heaven, a murderer and one who cuts an evil look at a friend or a sibling or a coworker are both in the same spot before God. This is hard to fathom. I've been wrestling with it for a week, and I still can't get to it. But interestingly enough, I was reminded of a friend. This friend it, it deeply values his health, and not in a narcissistic way. He, he doesn't want to get sick. He doesn't want the stomach bug. He doesn't want a cold, in a, in a good way. He wants to stay healthy so he can engage in the activities of life. And I still remember this. Whenever he would feel the smallest hint of a tickle in his throat, he's like, I got to go. I'm like, well, where you go? He goes to the store and he comes back. And tell me if you know what he brought back. One of those boxes of emergency, you know what I'm talking about? In that blue with the orange, with the oranges on the front. He's like, oh, I got to boost my immune system. I can't, oh, I can't take a chance of getting sick. I got to attack this small hint of a cold right now before it gets worse. I don't want to end up in the hospital. And I'm like, really? You've exaggerated that. But listen, he so valued his health that the smallest hint of some type of sickness, he jumped on it. In the same way, God sees relationships as so valuable that the smallest hint of what could destroy one, which is anger in the heart, he pounces on it. And he addresses it. The smallest hint. This cuts deep. God cares so much about relationships that he addresses not just what you do, but how you feel towards people. Who in this congregation, who in this pulpit can say, I am innocent of harboring feelings angry feelings towards someone? Who is free of saying, I have never slandered someone behind their back? Who is innocent of these things? 
Have you ever been shopping at a, at a Target or Old Navy? I just put out where we go shopping, didn't I? Have you ever been shopping at a Target or Old Navy and you're needing some help and one of the workers bypasses you and does something else? What runs through your mind about that person's character? Have you ever been working diligently with a coworker or for a boss and you throw throw out an idea and it gets pushed to the side? What are your thoughts about that person's intelligence for not going with your idea? You ever had a Christian brother disagree with you on an issue? What do you think about them? We are all guilty. But at this point, I want to make a, I want want to pause real quickly and make this point. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus had it. Jesus was so angry, he flipped over a table or two. Jesus was so infuriated by the Pharisees, he called them blind fools, both of which he says will make you liable before God. How is it that he is able to do it and we are not? Is he a hypocrite? No. He is filled with righteous indignation, righteous anger. And most people are filled with an anger that comes from personal injury, personal inconvenience, your kingdom getting cut down. Righteous anger is motivated by the glory of God, the love for humans, and a love for truth. And what I want to say is you should be filled with that level of indignation, a level of anger for the right reasons. You should be anger when you hear messages coming out of pulpits that say you can work your way to heaven, that preach universalism, that say prosperity messages, or any other gospel that's not found in the pages of Scripture. You should be ticked off by that. You should be filled with anger when people are marginalized and pushed to the side. You should be filled with holy anger, with sex trafficking, abortion, racial injustice, poverty. That should enrage you. You should be set aflame when the love and the truth of the gospel are rejected. I would argue in this vein, we don't need less anger, we need more. We need fire in our bellies as God's people, not less in this vein. But as far as anger because of personal injury, anger because of personal inconvenience, anger because your kingdom is getting dropped down, that needs to be put in the grave. This type of anger makes you liable before God. This type of anger makes you guilty as any man who has murdered or taken another man's life. The grace and forgiveness that we know murderers need is the same grace and forgiveness that heart murderers need as well. We need a savior. You need a savior for what you have thought. I need a savior for what I have said. And by God's grace, we have one, Jesus Christ. We have an advocate. We have one who stands and pleads beside us when we do not meet 
the standards that God has set before us as how we should relate to one another. As counterproductive as this feels, to do all that you can for the sake of relationships, you must first address your heart, the source of what destroys relationships. Acknowledge it, repent of it, recognize your need for grace, and trust in the grace that God has given through Jesus Christ to cover you, cover your inability to meet his standard. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus calls us to pursue the means that maintain relationships. Listen, we live in a fallen world. We are partially redeemed humans who still are moving towards Christ-likeness. That means we will never value relationships like we're supposed to. We will hurt people's feelings. We will give someone the evil eye. We will say something slanderous about someone. We will do that. And God, in his grace has been so gracious that he has given us the beautiful gift of reconciliation. That is what he has handed his people, reconciliation. But before I go any further, I want to make one small caveat. I want to draw a quick distinction between reconciliation and restoration. I understand living in a fallen world, many of you, and I've heard it, I've been told this, have had horrible um, relationships that you have been burned, parents, siblings, friends, significant others, you have been burned by them. Understand that God is calling for reconciliation and that restoration, this idea of the relationship getting back to what it was, that may not, that is not what Jesus is calling here because Sometimes egregious things can happen to such a degree that relationships can never get back to what they were. And what I want to say to you is if you are needing help to discern between reconciliation and restoration with what you're going through with your relationships, find a, a, a trusted mentor, find an el a, your parish elder and talk to them about this distinction. I wish I could dive more into it, but we got to keep rolling. So we're going to get back on to reconciliation. Reconciliation is this powerful tool that God has given his people. And in this, Jesus gives two quick illustrations. And the first illustration is found in the first two verses, uh, verse 23 and 24. Look what he says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, pause. What is he about to say? What do you think? How do you, what do you think Jesus is about to say? How is he going to respond to you are at the altar? He's talking to first century Jewish people who prize worship. There is nothing more important than worship, right? There's nothing more important than coming to the altar and giving your sacrifices and your gifts to God, right? He says, if you are at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave the gift there. First, be reconciled. What he is teaching here about reconciliation is that re reconciliation has top priority. 
Christianity can sometimes be over-spiritualized. And don't get me wrong, we love, I would not give my life to this, if corporate worship, Bible studies, all of these spiritual things are important, but relationships and reconciling relationships are, is spiritual work just as much as studying your Bible. Reconciliation is spiritual work. How you relate to people is a, a barometer of spiritual health, not just have you read your Bible this morning. God is in the nitty-gritty of life, and he cares about your personal relationships. But the second thing he says, so not only is reconciliation to be prioritized, reconciliation also must be something that is done quickly. Verse 25 says this, come to terms quickly with your accuser, quickly with him. In this illustration, Jesus is given to this, the, the people sitting before him is this picture of a man and his enemy taking him to court because he owes him something. And he says, come to terms quickly with him. Don't waste time. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Don't think tomorrow I'll take care of it. You know why? Because if you wait too long, he can hand you over to the guard. Excuse me, I got that wrong. Take you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and then the guard puts you in prison. Jesus' point is reconcile now, not tomorrow. Reconcile between a brother, an enemy, must be done now. But what I want to tell you is that reconciliation and that urgency can't just be between man and man, but man and God. Verses 26 and 22 point back to the reconciliation that we all must have before God. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That was the end of verse 26, the end of verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will skip you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. These are pictures of divine judgment. These references are a broken relationship between man and God and the urgency that God is calling us to. Not only here, he is calling us here with himself. Reconciliation retains relationship. Show me a man who is willing to work hard at reconciling, and I'll show you a man who loves and appreciates and values relationships. This is where the rubber hits the road. What do people say about you? What would you say about yourself? Are you quick to reconcile? Is reconciliation at the top of your priority list? Where Bible study is? Where coming to morning and evening worship is? Where that should be? Is reconciliation up there? If that is not what you are tagged, tonight is the night. Tonight is the night where we are moved by the grace of God and empowered by his spirit to make reconciliation a top priority. Who do you need to reconcile with? Is it a friend, family, coworker? Is it a sibling? Is it God in Jesus Christ? We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And my challenge to you this evening is to apply this text and the text of 1 Corinthians. Come to the table, as you're coming to the table, before you do that, to think through and meditate on three quick things. First, 
Think through and meditate on your relationship with God. Have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? Or are you looking to a false sense of security? I haven't murdered. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. Or are you resting in Jesus Christ and him alone? Second, your relationship with others. Do you have animosity with anybody? Does anybody have animosity with you? If so, what needs to be done to restore that and reconcile that as quickly as possible? And lastly, your need to be strengthened to do the task of addressing your heart and pursuing reconciliation. The reality is, when you hear those two things, those are daunting tasks, and we need spiritual strength to do it. And that is what this table is for. This table isn't for people who do not struggle with anger. This table isn't for, look, it, it isn't for people who say, reconciliation is a piece of cake. This table is for people who struggle with anger. This is, table is for people who are fearful of reconciliation. This is where we come and are strengthened by the Lord Jesus himself to do all that he has called us to do in our relationships. Relationships in the kingdom are valuable. And God calls us by his grace to do all that we can, first by addressing our heart and then by pursuing what maintains them. By God's grace, we will be living in a constant cycle of addressing our heart and reconciling to his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. You are a good God, a gracious God. We pray that you would empower us to do this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.